Kia ora, te roa, and welcome to Generally Famous Stuff Podcast. I'm Simon Bridges, and every week I talk to a generally famous but always interesting guest about life, love, and what makes them tick. Today's guest is a peak performance psychologist who, from a childhood in Eastern Europe, has been in our New Zealand military with operational experience in several countries, helped our New Zealand Special Forces, and among other things, escaped from being a hostage in Syria, as you do. Welcome, Dr. Alia Bojalova. Morena, Mr. Bridges. Hey, it's great to have you on. Um, I want to talk to you about your um, fascinating life before we get all psychological, as I'm sure we will. But um, you grew up in Eastern Europe. I did indeed, in Bulgaria. That's not a Kiwi accent we hear right now. No. Well, it's a Kiwi Eastern Europe accent, I suppose. The accent has morphed and evolved. I learned my English here in New Zealand, so yeah. I pride myself as having a Kiwi twang the whole way through. I really am very proud of it. I am recognized as a Kiwi everywhere I go outside yeah. of New Zealand. Yeah. But it's an amalgamation. So yeah. I was 17 when I moved to New Zealand from Bulgaria. Bulgaria, amazing. I don't know much about Bulgaria, and I deliberately didn't. What? What's, tell us, what should we know about Bulgaria? Well, what we should know is the Cyrillic alphabet, yogurt, Incredible mountains, stunning Black Sea coast, and unfortunately, still a whole lot of political and economic complexity right. that ends up taking away from the promise of the area. Yes. Um, have you been back there at all sort of recently or, you know, as in the last few years or? Several times, actually. I do love the vibrancy of it. And even the messiness of the Balkans yeah. is incredibly attractive to me. There's real charm to it. You know, you've got layers upon layers of history mixed with a whole heap of complexity so it can hold your attention for a while. Yeah, I know. I love that part of the world. As I was saying to you off here, my wife is, and Natalie's half Polish and uh, half Welsh, so, but grew up in the UK. So we've been to, to not, not Bulgaria, but, but other countries in that sort of neck of the woods, if you like. Um, what was it like for, for Kiwis who obviously haven't grown up there? Um, what, was it, what, what was it like growing up? I mean, compare and contrast it to, I think I'm right to say you've got a son. I do. Who's yes. obviously, a, you know, Kiwi, grown-up Kiwi. So how would you sort of contrast, a, you know, a Bulgarian um, childhood to to a, to a Kiwi one? I mean, I'm speaking of very specific time in Bulgarian history, but mm. at the time when I was growing up, this was after the fall of the Berlin War, yeah. you had years of transitioning from one political party to another in yeah. qu quick succession that basically created a whole a lot of um, instability in the country. Yes. Crime was on the rise. Organized crime was particularly dominant. So we did have economic crisis. We had hyperinflation. But what I do love about my memory of this place, and particularly this time, is the level of connection and solidarity that people have. Yeah. Like, for example, we lived in a six-story panel building, typical communist sort of building that you can imagine. Mm. And we would have scarcity of sugar. Would you mm. believe it? So whoever had it would run around and share it with the neighbors. Yeah. This is something I'd love for my son to be able to experience. Yeah. We live in a beautiful place in the country, in Cleveland. And he doesn't have a scarcity of sugar. no idea. No. no scarcity of sugar at all. Yeah. What would be a traditional Bulgarian meal? If I'd come, if I, if I'd come to, to Bulgaria and someone wanted to, you know, impress me and they're having me at their home, what would I be eating? I mean... I'm vegetarian, and I know others have claimed this meal as their own, but I'm going to have to say vegetarian moussaka. Yeah, it'd be amazing. That's what I sort of Absolutely. thought it'd be, something like that. Proper layers and layers of vegetables, usually from your garden or from your neighbor's garden. 
you know, with beautiful, Amazing. juicy kind of cover on top. Everyone should have that, but they must have it in Bulgaria. You were 17 when you came to New Zealand. Is that about right? That is, yeah, that's um, correct. How did you hear and, and run me? Actually, let's go. And, and your parents, I think I'm right. I think I saw somewhere on the internet your dad was in the military. My dad was in the Air Force. Right. He will always be a pilot in his yes. mind, at least. Um, but he was an Air Force pilot. And he one of his dreams for the longest of time was to fly in Kadrona or near yeah. Kadrona because of wind conditions. So he came here to New Zealand on a hang gliding competition, or so he said, and he never left. Do you think he came in truth with that intention to stay or do you think it changed when he was here? When my dad was unrelenting, he is someone who has overcome so many obstacles in his life yeah. to achieve his dream. And I do believe firmly, even though he will never change his mind about it or at least what he says about it, yeah. I firmly believe that he came here with the intent to stay yeah. because this was the place where his children would have much greater Better freedom life. and space. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I would do the same. And so you're 17, you're in Christchurch and you've got no English. <laughs> that must have been fun. That was a fascinating experience. Was it, I mean, I'm being glad, but was it, um, well, what was it like? Was it hard? Have you ever had the feeling of, it's it's a feeling of entrapment, right? You've got this amazing concepts that you want to share with the world. You feel like, you know, I mean, 17. It's, you, you're Sounds as like New as Zealand Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry you had this no, experience. No. I empathize. It yeah. must have been complex. But it's a waiting game, right? And so the, the language barrier was huge, especially because you see how people respond to you if you come come across as someone who cannot communicate the thoughts clearly and yes. uh, and as powerfully as they sound in, inside your own mind, um, but huge motivated to pick it up and learn it as well. So you learn English how? By absorption, just by submerging myself in yeah. the experience of being in New Zealand as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I take it what happened, you went to university. How did you come to be in the military? As I remember it, it was a little bit of an accident, uh, but also not so much. So I finished my studies and I had a really awesome job lined up as a consultant mm. in a IO consulting firm. But then I knew that the officer selection board was happening. A dear friend of mine, a colleague of mine was going to attend the officer selection board. This had been his dream his whole life to serve with the military. I decided to go to the officer selection board to see what this process looks like. And in my industry, on my in my field that I trained in as an industrial psychologist, organizational psychologist, officer selection boards for militaries are the pinnacle, you know. So I went there out of curiosity. My colleague was not selected. I was selected. And then I had to make the call. So my instinct was to serve in the New Zealand Army for a year. And the year became many more. It's a big question, really, before we've even got into it. But did you make the right call? I mean, I you look so. back all that time because you're no longer in the military. Yeah, I'm reservist. Right, I see. And I'm, and I'm going to stay there until Fantastic. they kick me out. Well, that makes <laughs> me love. feel somewhat safer for New Zealand. Do you look back on it and say, yeah, that was the right call. It was an amazing experience. By all means. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. There are countless times where I think to myself, what did I do? Where did I invest this time? You know, you, you, miss, you miss connections. You miss birthday parties, you miss, you know, all sorts of things that are a part of normal, stable, predictable life when you're serving a military, particularly in the way I did. Um, but the feeling of contribution and the capacity um, for for giving back, as well as the adventure, I would be really con concerned if I'd missed out on this in my life. Mm. 
how long were you in the NZDF for? I still am in the NZDF. Oh, I see. But Sorry. As a, 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 as full-time. a full-time officer, nine years. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you were um, was your first. Run me through the sort of roles, but I've got here regional field psychologist. Yeah. And then you sort of moved up the ranks within that kind of um, area into into leadership more broadly. Yeah. What's it? What is a regional field psychologist? It's an ever-evolving job. <laughs> it's just one of these blanket job descriptions that you get given for do all things psychology as they are needed at the time. But the regional field psychologists effectively have different regions within the military. Um, and so you're responsible for a particular segment of the population. What, um, what, what, what sort of issues are you dealing with when you're talking about military people? Is it, um, what is it? Is it, is it depression? Is it anxiety? Is it maybe it's the other, overconfidence? I don't know. What are you, what are you trying to ensure that a serving um, soldier, mm. whatever, whether, whether air or ground or naval, what, what are you trying to, to, to make them? Well, I guess we try to take the things that might take away from them. That's really the, yes. the job. Everyone shows up with the full potential and the job of the context is to help develop that and not to take away from it. During my time of service, particularly in this particular role, what you do depended very much on what the focus of the region that you served for did. So in some instances, the primary focus will be training. In others, it'll be deployability. Uh, in other regions, it will be deploying together with other military units. Um, so how you develop those capabilities and that talent very much depends on the nature of your role. But the primary focus of military psychologists during my time was to ensure peak performance. We had clinical psychologists that were external to the organization that would support individuals when they struggled. Uh, but we were the first starting point. And the focus for us was always ensuring peak performance for that individual as well as the unit and the team that they were part of. Mm. We... Um we use the word iconic a bit too much, I think, in the modern world. But, you know, think of these iconic organisations in New Zealand. You know, All Blacks, a handful of others, if I sit here and think long enough. I mean, one of them is our New Zealand SAS, or Special Forces. And you tell me how what, what your role was um, over time, because I presume that wasn't day one. What happened and you're there and you're very much working in and with uh, the NZSAS um, on a daily basis? Mm. So I started my role with, as the lead psychologist for the New Zealand Special Air Service relatively early in my career. And the role involved taking care of operators and the team through the entire life cycle of an operator. So from selection, which was the core essence of what we did, selecting the best fit for the team, through to ensuring that they can work as well as possible within the team and helping them develop the mental capabilities they need in order to endure whatever was ahead of them and, of course, the post-deployment recovery cycle. In terms of that sort of training, selection, qualification regime, mm -hmm. I mean, we there's a sort of a mythology about all this, right? Absolutely. People have a sense of, you know, and we know there's some, and you allude to it in your book that, um, you know, I've read a great book, but this gruelling selection course, I mean, to the extent that you're down, what, what, broadly what's involved, what, what, what does it take to become a... Uh, an SAS member. Do you know what's interesting? For the longest of time, what the SAS cycle training or selection cycle involved was a jealously guarded secret. But then we quickly realized that even if we were open about every detail of it, it didn't make people better prepared. No. <laughs> because it's all in your mind, you know what I mean? Right. So the selection process is 
to an extent, a rite of passage. Every component of it has remained largely unchanged for the longest of time. And it needs to be this way because humans still need to be able to put forward exactly the same capabilities in exactly the same types of trials, mm. irrespective of our context has changed. Mm. And so what it involves is huge amount of solitude, enduring enormous amount of discomfort and pain, the ability to switch quickly from sitting still to rapid move of action. Uh, but really, you are in your own head for the longest of time, traversing some of the most unfriendly terrains mm. in all conditions with huge pack on your back that carries everything that you will need to survive during this period of time. What's fascinating to me as well, I think I picked this up from your book, is that you don't, um, there is no set number of SAS. So it's kind of, and so you're not varying the test, as you say. Either you make it um, or, or you, you, you don't. Mm -hmm. And what, I presume plenty don't. Plenty don't. Plenty don't. The, the standard never changes, irrespective of how many people we need and how many people show up. The standard is the standard that needs to be met, and that's determined by operational needs. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, to be fair. It's heartbreaking because you know that everyone that shows at a starting point has sacrificed a ton to be there. Just imagine making a choice. Well, you can imagine making a choice of putting yourself forward in the fullness of your capabilities and knowing that this is the one thing that you're going to be pushing forward through, and, and there is, there's nothing in between. You know, you're not going to be kind of half-selected. You don't have a second gate to go through in order to succeed. And so it is quite a merciless, merciless experience. Do people do it more than once? Some people do it more than once. It's just fascinating sort of thing about it. I don't believe this, by the way, but I'm going to say it anyway for you to answer. Someone might say, well, look, this is all a bit kind of, this is 2023, uh -huh. sounds a bit sort of macho and masochistic. Um, you know, put them on a treadmill, see if they can do that, then kind of, I don't know, put them in an obstacle course, see if they can do that, and then psychometric right. test them. And that's good enough. You don't have to do all this mean stuff where you've dropped them in the middle of nowhere and they, they've got blisters all over their body and they, they can't survive and they're hungry and... Why do we? I suppose the ultimate question of that is why, and 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 what what are we? What are the attributes you think that doing that shows that they've got? Imagine imagine a world within which everyone ascribed to that rule of let's not just be too mean, let's yeah. just go ahead and reduce all challenges and all yeah. obstacles so that people feel comfortable. Imagine what that would lead to. That would be extraordinary, but it isn't the reality, right? No. And so you'd expect that these individuals would be able to deploy as a singular unit as or as a part of a tiny team, sometimes in environments where they don't, well, they're in hostile environments. By definition, they have to be behind enemy lines. So if they cannot handle a blister, the probability of them handling a prolonged period of deprivation, isolation, discomfort, solitude, and pain, um, pain physical, emotional, ethical complexity, if they cannot sustain the ability to reason effectively in those conditions, then I don't know what we are doing. I mean, the obvious uh, perhaps um, answer to my question is um, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's these uh, battles that we have right now, very yeah. modern. We've been lucky as a world and, you know, we all wish it was so, but that, that we haven't had um, so many wars in recent times. But, of course, there are, there are wars. Um, there are um, 
bad leaders, mm-hmm. and uh, and and we need people to be at this this level. So I think that would be my sort of answer generally. I mean, what's it like for the soldiers psychologically? So you're the psychologist. You're involved with them. I, I presume in sort of do you do any pre care for them or preparation for them before they go on this um, um, qualification regime? Or is it after? Before the selection goes, no, because you don't, you can't really prepare people for what they haven't experienced um, to that extent in that context. The one thing they need to know is themselves and how they will manage some of the most complex setbacks and challenges that they have within themselves emotionally and physically, right? So you can't really prepare them for that. We do pre-select them. By and large, the vast majority of SAS candidates come from trained military entities, so they come from Army, Navy, and Air Force, and so they would have already had a sense of what that might entail. Then the rest of it is discovering for themselves what that feels like to their bodies and their minds, and that's something you can't prepare people for because it's a very subjective experience. Are there qu- pre-qualifications? They have to be certain age, certain fitness, all these kind of things? They have to be certain fitness, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, there, there, there yeah. goes my dream. <laughs> there is always a chance. Never I give guess, up. Never I don't, give up, Simon. <laughs> it's, not a, a, <laughs> it's not a significant chance, I think, Alia. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's for sure. I know a few ex-SAS um, soldiers quite well, and, uh, you know, it's amazing talking to them, not that they've ever divulged sort of confidences or, or the like, but... I don't know New Zealanders quite understand the situations these servicemen um, and women put themselves into. Mm. I mean, firstly, am I right? As a generalisation, there are often operations going on. I mean, this is not sort of a once every 10 years. I mean, the, the, these are um, servicemen and women who are um, trained for this, ready for this, actually at a level because – they have trained for it and ready for it, want it, mm-hmm. and they are out in active service in very dangerous places. You know, um, I don't know if relatively regularly, but relatively regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, on that, can women be SAS? Has there ever been one? Well, they have been. Wow. But Amazing. we do have to do some work in retaining them. Yes. Do you think you'd make the test? Today? In my <laughs> oh, high heels? Well, maybe at your <laughs> Probably. At the this, height is how, of... <laughs> this is how committed I am. <laughs> Amazing. Hugely dangerous operations around the world. Mm. Is it a bit like the movies? You know, because this, this has been played out in movies probably, you know, four movies a year or something. Is, mm. is, I mean, is there something in what they show us? If there's a movie that can also integrate the stench, the darkness, the heat, the extremes of temperature from extreme cold to extreme heat, the feeling of what it means to be hungry and sleep deprived and needing to reason, as well as the enormous periods of dullness and boredom, then it'll represent it. But what we are seeing is desaturated uh, experiences of fireworks and intensity. And intensity can brace you and can hold you together for a while. Mm. What sucks the most, what's most complicated are the periods in between. Mm. And so imagine a movie that can provide those contextual and sensory cues then that would make a whole heap more sense. I remember reading something about uh, the view of police and, and the reason why, you know, a young man, probably more than a woman, uh, but young men and women would say, oh, I want to get in, is because they see the, the the cops and robbers and the chasers and the physical and they think, yeah, that's me. I'm yeah. amazing there. But they but they don't realise all the tedium and the paperwork on the other side. And, um, and I presume what you're saying is, you know, if you're New Zealand S Special Forces, 
um, and you've been dropped into Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you may be sitting, lying, hiding, and camouflage waiting yeah. for four days. That's right. That's um, right. For that 27 seconds of action. Um, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Or no action is. at all. So, you know, that little phrase of hurry up and wait, Yeah, that exists for a reason. Not a particularly comfortable place to be no. if you are. You're not really selling it, Aaliyah. I'm, I mean, no. <laughs> it has um, to come from within, you see. I the think I'd rather watch it on a movie. Um, <laughs> no, but it all hats off to those servicemen and women who have, have done it. Let's talk a bit about psychology and the NZSAS, and then we'll move into, you know, some other things. I mean, what what does an NZSAS service man or woman need help with psychologically from uh, a you, from, from someone in your role? The interesting part is I suspect as all psychologists that have served with the unit would say that, I think it's less about help with uh, and more about help to. So, for example, right. the reason why I'm saying this is you having met a number of the SS operators that you know, you realize how different they are. They're completely different from one another, right? And so the way in which SS operators self-select for the SS is very specific. They all come with abundance of innate resilience. They all develop it as individuals and cohorts through the trials that they overcome during the training cycle and operations. So what they're dealing with is an enormous workload, huge amount of demands, relative isolation. Even when they are here in New Zealand during training cycles, it's an extraordinarily demanding experience. So the job to be done is to help them find as many ways as possible to keep on keeping on. And that's sometimes something that happens from within. More often than not, that's what they're there for, and that's why they have succeeded. But making sense of some of the obstacles that they overcome, understanding themselves and those around them better, being able to better decompartmentalize some of the experiences that they're going through, that's the sort of stuff that a psychologist would do and, for them. And, and I know it's it's probably very, um, indeed you have written a book about this, but but so it's not possibly not easy to sum up, but it, is there a way to describe the attribute or the how of what that looks like mm-hmm. um, for someone like that to, to you know, keep on keeping on, mm-hmm. not be fixated on the fact that a mosquito is, is, is at them and, you know, they've cut their leg or, 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 you know, or they're cold and tired? Yeah. Well, so two things amongst the many that really do matter. The first one is that sense of awareness rather than alertness or wishful thinking. So awareness for the reality as it is, words and all, and capacity to accept it, as opposed to alertness and worrying about what could happen or what has happened or wishful thinking and rejecting all the components of the environment as it is. But the second one, and this is the bit that actually started us off on this book and the enormous piece of work that we have done around what does it, what supports resilience in the most complex scenarios, and that's curiosity. So what was astonishing, what? over 10 years ago, is for us to discover that SAS members have profound levels of curiosity, and that's one of the common denominators amongst all of them. So you keep on keeping on because you're prepared to question your state of mind even sometimes. So when you're finding yourself in a lull, you have the capability to reason your way out of it, to explore alternative ways of thinking, feeling, and being. You mentioned that earlier, to give things a go, to never give in, to never stand still right? Unless this is the most effective cause of action in that moment. So that capacity for curiosity is a powerful common denominator for all of them that we all need to scoop up some of.
Kia ora Aotearoa and welcome to The Big Stuff Quiz. I'm your host, Imogen Wells, alongside my assistant, the wonderful Chris Reid. Hello everyone. Each week we'll release a new episode to test your wits with two rounds of ten questions. One potluck round and another that's very loosely themed. A bit tangential even. Such a good word. If you think you're up for the challenge, go and follow our show on your favourite podcast platform, The Big Stuff Quiz, is out now. The Big Stuff Quiz is proudly brought to you by Melbourne. Every bit different. You yourself have got operational experience, I think, in the likes of Afghanistan, Syria, Israel, the wider Middle East, Solomon's East Timor, closer to home. How's that worked? Was that, I I think I'm right, some of it New Zealand military, some of it with the United Nations? Yeah, that's right. What were you doing in those locations, broadly speaking? So outside of Syria and Israel, where I was deployed with the United Nations, Mm -hmm. I continued on to serve as a psychologist. So I was attached to the respective team that I was supporting at the time. And we would deal with the challenges of deployment um, as they unfolded in front of us during my during my operations. But the UN deployment that you mentioned, uh, which was 2013 and 2014, um, was UNSO, so across five countries in the Middle East, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. Um, and I was selected to serve in Syria at the time, which was an extraordinary gift. I, I presume these countries, um, very beautiful in some ways, um, very complex, uh, so many problems. Mm-hmm. Um, you were kidnapped by military in Syria. That's right, yeah. Tell us about that. So we were taken hostage in Syria in May 2013, and this was the tail end of plenty of incidences that showed us where we were wasn't safe. And the standing of UN as a safe flag to have on your shoulder was no longer relevant to to the warring parties within Syria. This is a time um, of civil war, right? Mm, yeah. A time of civil war, a time of enormous turmoil. 2013. 2013. Yeah. So initially the conflict was with between the Free Syrian Army and the Syrian military. Mm-hmm. Over time, we knew that there were plenty of fractious groups that were entering Syria with their own agenda. And so the environment in which we were moving was incredibly complex, really, really intricately quite, um, quite testing we were taken hostage from a UN installation, which hadn't happened before. So UN military observers, uh, their vehicles with them in it had been hijacked. Uh, there were plenty of situations where we were threatened, um, but we hadn't been taken hostage out of a UN installation. And when you think about this environment where you have had people, the local population living with the UN since 1948, the, the idea of this being an impenetrable entity was basically part of three generations' mindsets. Um, and the fact that we were taken showed that that just wasn't a protective bubble anymore and that respect for the UN was no longer there. Broadly speaking, who are the people that have um, taken you hostage? What's their deal? I mean, they are, I'm sorry for showing ignorance, mm. but what, rebel fighters or how does that work? What are they? Yeah. Yeah, rebel fighters. And so we still don't know precisely who this group was, and we suspect that they were an amalgamation of different entities. But um, their intent at the time when they took us was, um, and I keep saying this, but it was to make a bad video of us. And and when they took us, they signaled a, a decapitation sign, so effectively saying to us that they were going to chop our heads off, for the lack of a better phrase. And we knew at the time that, uh, videos of decapitation were commonly used between warring parties to communicate commitment to the mission. 
we suspect, or at least the outcome of our experience suggested that they needed to be seen, needed to be heard, that the objective needed to be better understood. And so as we exited this scenario, we managed to organize an audience with the UN general at the time in Syria. And mm. that's, that's really what they were after. But that took some discussion and some neg- negotiation. And were you effectively leading that discussion and negotiation? It so happened to be that I needed to start the conversation and perhaps it was easier for me um, to do so. Well, you say easier, but I mean, it's a remarkable, isn't it? Because you are trained in uh, the psychology of these sort of things and indeed mm. advising and helping uh, the likes of the SAS on them. But I presume you're, you're um, if not entirely uninitiated personally in dealing with this, I mean, this is not... Um, this is not something that's happened before for you. And so mm. you're having to put into place what you've learned into practice yeah. in the, the the most stressful situation. Were you, um, I mean, I would, I don't want to be, again, um, um, uh, glib about it, but were you, were you really scared? Or were you actually remarkably in control um, uh, in the situation? Bulgarians don't don't like being remarkably in control. I think one of the um, sorry that was a that was a you know a joke that didn't find its right time. But what, <laughs> what it was there's virtually no way a healthy human will not have a stress response in a situation like that. Mm. It just as a context, it was in the middle of the night, and I woke up by the sound of what I thought were foxes barking, which is absurd. You know when you have this kind of half awake state where like this is making no sense at all. And what I was hearing were men jumping over the fences of the UN installation we were in, shouting orders at each other and trying to cluster around our building. I also woke up by the medic call that was being made by one of my colleagues, just the door next to me. And so as you're waking in the middle of the night, you're starting to make sense of all of these things that just don't belong in your context. And by the time when I stood up, which would have taken a couple of seconds, I think, just in um, minutes... I had a gun pointed at me uh, from someone, two men standing outside of the window. At the same time, windows next door were being smashed. So you have this, this layers of stuff happening at the same time. You have to try and make sense of it. The feeling of fear kicking in, you know, blood rushing to your head and, and away from your brain and into your internal organs felt really intense. I remember feeling this and going, aha, here is your acute stress response. But a part of me... And that was obviously for all of us as well, because we were all trained to deal in situations like this. You recognize that everything, however new, is a little like something else you've seen before, if you have that level of preparedness. And, you know, training does kick in really quickly. When you are in situations like the acute, you have two options. You can lay dead, you can scream, you can try to bail out, not particularly logical, or you could try to look for ways out. And that's what we did. What was your strategy in the negotiation? How did that go? The first thing that crossed my mind was if we can strike a connection, if we can build a connection as quickly as possible, then we have a chance. That was it. If we could just build a connection, if we are seen as worthy humans, then we have an opportunity to to tilt things slightly. Um, so by that stage, we were being given this message of, we, you know, we are, we are here to take and make a bad video of you. And this was the opportunity of actually starting, to, uh, trying to create a little bit of a dissonance, uh, trying to see if you can nudge in a couple of alternative suggestions that can perhaps fuel the mission for, for this party. Um, yeah, that was the starting tactic. And this is the one that stayed with us the whole way through. Build a connection, 
there's a human standing in front of you. We must have done, again, I must say this carefully, but a good job because, as you say, they came to end your lives and Mm. you came out to tell the tale. How did you get communication with the outside world? It sounds like what you're saying is that that happened. What Did Mm -hmm. they allow that or how did that Eventually they did. Eventually we earned communication with the outside world. So remember they had their uh, radio. Because you were suggesting to them over time what that you could get for them, certain things that would meet their aspirations around this, like the meeting, I forget who you say with, but are you an official or the like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. It wasn't, a, uh, we tried, in fairness, we tried to barter. So we managed to build connection, but not fast enough for us to not be extracted out of the, out of the post. And I think the component that presented the greatest risk was that we were taken out and into Syria um, before we managed to negotiate our release. So once you get into those spaces, it's it's quite a dangerous space to be in. Um, what did you learn, uh, both profession, I suppose, and about yourself from that, you know, most um, complex, difficult, um, life-threatening situation? Do you know, uh, don't think me odd, but I do remember stepping out of this with with gratitude and actually realizing that the stuff we preach and the things we practice totally work. Hmm. And it's it's absurd, right? Because you're thinking about this enormous field of psychology that is supposed to save the world. Um, and occasionally, as a good scientist, you kind of have to go, well, really? Does it work like that? And it does. So for me, the biggest learning was, well, two. The first one is that you absolutely always have a way of improving your predicament at all circumstances. And you can do so consistent with your values and in the direction of your mission. And I love that. And the second part is that you can always find a common ground, even if it is with your worst adversary. Fantastic. Look, thank you so much for your service and what you've done. And uh, you've been awarded an NZDF a Meritorious Service Medal and a United Nations Commendation. Was, were they around that um, incident or series of incidents or were different things? They were around the, the cycle of deployment, that particular deployment, yeah. Amazing. Um, you're married to, uh, I think I'm right to say, an ex-NZSAS soldier and, you know, you've got a family. What would you say is a generalisation around that, that ex-NZSAS soldier thing is it is it a is it a um do they have difficulties getting back out into ordinarily life after you know being in these situations of um great danger and hostile territory um where where peak performance is very different really from what peak performance kind of normal life is Mm. again it's difficult to imagine anyone for whom that would not be an impossibly challenging transition even for someone who has train themselves to transition from one state to the next. That is a lot because you have to find yourself and your sense of purpose in a completely different environment. Many have succeeded because they understand themselves really well and then they can adapt. Adaptability is a critical component. Some have struggled um, and that's, I guess, in every context the case, but particularly challenging when you have such a powerful mission and so much challenge. You're, um, you're working today, you know, peak performance psychology and leadership across sports, commerce, not-for-profit, um, government sectors, um, and, and that's, you know, organisational team, um, uh, but also individual resilience and leadership and the like, and curiosity, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, to give us a sense of yeah, what you do today and the, the sort of work you're involved in. I love the work I'm involved in today. 
more so than the work that I used to do because it is incredibly versatile and one context fuels the other. So I work across all these different sectors, including venture. So focusing on new entrepreneurs that are there to make an enormous difference with just an idea. And I love that. So remarkably, even though the context is very, very different, the nature of my work is much the same. We all travel in the same context. We all struggle with the same challenges, irrespective of what it is that we do. We all are human, leading other humans or being led by others. So I love See, what I, I do. See, I thought that, that, you know, um, I get that at one level, but I, I sit there and say, well, SAS in Afghanistan um, with Taliban and, you know, various hostile forces around them, you know, it just kind of doesn't compare with, um, you know, crazy tech dude trying to start up some AI <laughs> business. But it does because it's in the mind of the beholder, you see. And and do you know what? I mean, as much as crazy SAS dudes and hostages and all that sort of stuff, this is intensely complicated. We all know how much harder it is to be navigating traffic, to be nav- navigating different perspectives, to be sitting uh, across in a boardroom where people don't necessarily have your back. Scrutiny, criticism, uh, lack of trust, uh, disagreement with strategic objectives, that stuff can actually be nastier and more difficult to process. Wet Wednesday morning where the same thing seems to happen over and over and over again, that stuff can be harder than the sorts of things that challenge you to push yourself to your maximum, but that's what your life depends on. You know, our life doesn't depend on us navigating traffic effectively, so we don't have the freedom to react in a way that is proportionate to the stress that we feel. I was about to say you haven't seen my wife drive, drive, but that's that's terrible. <laughs> she, she would say the same really? about me. No. Um, what's resilience and and leadership to you? I mean, these words they can be they're capable of being sort of they're buzzwordy, right? But and and a bit devalued possibly. But yeah, I mean, give us your true sense of resilience and leadership. Resilience can be buzzwordy, and that concerns me because we miss the point a lot of the time. What I'm worried about is the whole tendency for us to bounce back because, as we all know, what we try to bounce back to is seldom there. What we need to be focusing on is learning as quickly as we can, adapting. Resilience is bouncing forward better than you were when your predicament found you. So how good are you at absorbing the lessons learned, adapting them to your context, and most importantly, contributing with them? You would have known from my book, one of the core components to resilience is belonging, And with that comes a heuristic often used by the SAS, which is belong and make better. So the short of it is bouncing forward, better new predicament found you with the willingness to learn, grow and contribute greater than you had before. That's it. Get up that way. And so if you've got an organization, a team or an individual that you choose to work with with you, in general terms, I appreciate it's context specific, but... What's your advice around achieving better performance? What's a few things you'd say that's that's what they should be doing? Focus on the mission first and see how you sit with it best. I think the capacity of serving something greater than yourself is something we sometimes forget a little more. And 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 what makes a champion team or individual, do you think? Is it you I mean you've I suppose you've talked about curiosity, mm-hmm. resilience. I mean, are they the defining features yeah and when also understanding each other ability to be transparent with who it is that you are who it is that is standing there holding the ground beneath the feet i think a lot of us are spending exuberant amount of time together but we don't necessarily understand who it is that we are spending time with and so you have this 
you know, hidden agendas traveling around the corridors that completely take away from what it is that we are there to achieve. Humans aren't particularly good operating effectively in environments of low trust, where we tend to create these environments of low trust because of fear of authentic self. And again, that's another one of those commonly used phrases that has fluffy connotation to it. It isn't. It's understanding who it is that is standing there, words and all. And one thing I've loved about military context, particularly in the SAS, is that no one is prepared to hide that stuff because it ends up finding you out at some point. So the starting point is, again, awareness. Self-awareness, interpersonal awareness, situational awareness. The next one is belonging. To what extent does the mission that you align yourself to or assign yourself to connect with your values of beliefs? Can you serve it as well? I I think in a way, I was about to ask you about your book, your book, you know, the Resilience Toolkit. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got this four-step process to unlock potential ABCD, awareness, belonging, Mm -hmm. curiosity, drive. I mean, you've really described that in a way just then, have you? I mean, is there anything else you'd say about that or...? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's anything else, but it's double-clicking on that stuff that I think that matters. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to sum up what are the things that we know work and what have we observed is needed across not just military context, of course, but a variety of other contexts. And that's why this toolkit is so important. It's actually understanding that these things, irrespective of context, are non-negotiables. They need to be understood. We can continue on rolling with the punches as we have, but it'll not lead to the level of effectiveness we need to achieve. You've been doing a bit of TV with yes. Vinnie Jones, um, Trent. <laughs> Tell us about that. That was another accident. Do you notice how sometimes you just lean into things and accidents happen, but they're good? Um, well, the concept for Trekt was something that I was approached with to begin with, um, and it sounded really, really interesting, uh, and it sounded very appealing eventually because two of my colleagues from the military uh, had decided that they're going to be participants. The production company said, not so much because you're a trained military individual, but mm. how about you come along and be a tracker? Mm. So we, we moved as a package, which was fantastic because we had, you know, the, the kind of the camaraderie back into the And the, the basic mix. concept then is what? that uh, um, uh, Put lay people in, what, celebrities or something in, and they have to get themselves away and they've got these military professionals tracking them, have they? Yes, that's right. What an insane idea, Right. But it does work because you have, so we didn't have celebrities that were being tracked. The only celebrity was Vinnie Jones, who we wouldn't try to track. Um, but we had uh, a whole lot of normal people who decided that they were going to test the abilities to survive the wild and, uh, and evade military trained trackers. Mm-hmm. Scary stuff. Fantastic. Um, in your life, all your experience and in, in, in psychology, I mean, what does it mean for you? What, what what do you do to live a more effective, impactful life? I pause more often than I'd like to, and I make more intentional choices more often than I'd like to. If I um, do that, I can contribute more purposefully. And so I think that's, that's the aim for me. We're going to finish with something we ask every guest. We call this section general knowledge. Um, I've got no idea how you or I are going to go on this, but if you could be somebody else for a day, who would it be? I'm going to be my husband. I need to understand his state of mind. <laughs> I, do, I need to. Is can it, I say that? Do you, do you think it will be relatively simple or complex? I think, can it be both at the same time? Yeah, well, that's He tells true. me it's one, but it's actually that's, the other. I think it's both. Oh, that's yes. true of all men and women, I think, at some level, from the opposite sex's perspective. If money was no object... What are the first three things you would buy? 
I genuinely mean that when I say it, there are um, plenty of areas that we support in, for example, Syria. Uh, there are some in Bulgaria that I've recently started supporting, and they focus primarily on young women's education. Now, mm. Both of these areas have particularly poor ratio of educating girls versus boys, and they have incredibly poor predictions for success in life for young women. Um, so there are some areas in Bulgaria that I would instantly find myself in, and I will build academic institutions that can help solve for this because it's insane. It is insane and is the same across so many other parts in the world. So that is a no-brainer. Which famous actor would play you in the movie of your life? Can I have an amalgamation? Yes. Which one would you choose for yourself? And that'll give me a chance to... Well, you know, if I lost sort of um, realistically 20 kgs probably, (laughs) um, uh, maybe Keanu Reeves. Would you? Yeah. Really? But it's not about me, Alia. Well, I mean, come on. It's about you. Me. Do you know this extraordinary- this is asp- That was aspirational, right? I mean, there's, You know, I don't want to choose, you know, Chevy Chase or someone. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, you could do Ken Reeves. I can see that. I would love to be- Okay, what- Do you know this incredible ninja woman that I want to be when I grow up? She's an Israeli- Her name is Gadot, but I don't know yeah, her Yeah, she's- name. Um, She's um, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Yes. Imagine. It's, we've just been told as Gal Gadot. Yes. Gal Gadot. Um, yep. I could see that. I that totally is totally, I, that. you don't need an amalgamation. That's Don't you. <laughs> yeah. A Bulgarian version I of could, her. And I could see that? her doing like a, yes, I could see her doing like a, um, the, the hostage scene, the mm-hmm. SAS training. Um, yeah. It'd be a good movie. It'd be a good movie, I think. What's the strangest tradition in your family? Well, our family is so very odd in so many different ways that the strangest tradition is sticking to a really average tradition like pizza night on Friday. And to be fair, it sounds like nothing, but it can be incredibly stressful because my husband and I are, you know, unpredictable loose cannons. We have completely uh, incompatible calendars 99.9% of the time and and a shockingly stable child between us two. So no matter what's going on, maybe that's why he's trying to stay sane in the middle. So are you making these pizzas or are you um, buying them in? This is the thing. You have to make the pizza from scratch. You mm. can't just go ahead and cheat on a process. So, you know, there's a whole lot of stress going on about nothing other than a pizza night. That's what makes it um, makes it odd. What, are we, what, what sort of toppings are we going with? Tomatoes from Cleveland Markets. Yes. Curious croppers. Yes. You have to have buffalo mozzarella mm. from Cleveland Market cheese as well, you know. Those are the two absolute essentials. The rest of it is depending. Fantastic. I'm coming. If you could choose to stop aging at any age, which would you choose? I wouldn't go ahead and do that. How much would you miss out on? Are you serious? No way. I want to be a grumpy old lady. I don't want to stop aging ever. Fair enough. Well, Leah, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Generally Famous. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for the privilege. You've been listening to Generally Famous with me, Simon Bridges. This is the final episode of the season. I'll be back in a few weeks with more brilliant guests. If you're a new listener, you can find every episode at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black and audio editor John Ropiha. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you liked listening to this pod, Help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.
Mark, if we look at News Hub, the potential of that closing its entire operation in June, the cuts at TVNZ, what's at risk here? Well, look, we get into this whole thing, you know, democracy is at risk, but News Hub from their first days always tried to do things a little bit differently and may have been considered a little bit more sort of kick-ass and less respectful to the politicians. But you need that. I mean, our job is not to be sort of cheerleaders for whoever. It should be to sort of to question and, uh, and to keep people informed. If you don't have a news media sort of calling people out, it's the Wild West. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts.